Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 7th of November 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border, and uh, our very own Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. Uh, well, we've got to get ready for Med Safety Week. Here it is. Um, this is 17th to the 13th of November. And uh, well, who's behind that? Well, no one better than the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Agency, Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, I should say. So launched today by the MHRA, the seventh annual Med Safety Week is running until 13th November to encourage widespread public engagement and improve patient safety by reporting suspected side effects associated with medicines and adverse incidents involving medical devices. We'll come on to the public engagement point in a second. Uh, they go on to say this year's campaign is a truly global effort and involves healthcare products regulators from no further than no fewer than 82 countries, uh, led by Uppsala Monitoring Centre, the World Health Organization Collaboration Centre for International Drug Monitoring. It is important that everyone makes a report, they said, as soon as they suspect side effects and adverse incidents. The yellow card scheme is the MHRA's single system for collecting suspected side effects of medicines and adverse uh, incidents involving medical devices. These side effects and adverse incidents are then collated and swiftly investigated by the MHRA. Really? Okay. They go on to say, um, sorry, they go on to say, since its establishment in 1964, the scheme has identified numerous safety issues uh, to the benefit of many, thanks to individual reports from medicines across the nation. So I just want to take this opportunity to remind everybody that since the MHRA is really appalling at publishing this information, uh, we had to create a website for it, uh, yellowcar.ukcolumn.org. And just keep in mind that this website is designed to highlight how bad the MHRA's reporting is. Um, we can only publish what they produce or provide it in a presentable way. Uh, Michael, I, I'm, I think I'm shocked, actually, because I, I knew what was coming up in that segment of the work of the news. But see MHRA saying that it was swiftly following up on information provided for the yellow cards. I can't even call it misinformation. It's a lie because uh, it is the last thing they're doing. Well, indeed. So let's just remind ourselves what the all-cause mortality situation is. MHRA doesn't seem uh, too concerned about the excess mortality that's going on uh, this year. And uh, they're not certainly not contributing to discover whether vaccines have any, uh, any uh, blame for any of this. Uh, but let's just come back to the uh, encouragement of widespread public engagement issue. Uh, because, Brian, of course, many people now have written to the MHRA in an effort to get some public engagement. Uh, and this has been the response that they've had. Yes, <laughs> it's absolutely true. We're, we're laughing, but this is a very, very serious subject. The MHRA utterly refused to engage with people asking, um, I'm going to say clear, precise, professional questions. They don't want to answer it. They don't want to respond to people who've already submitted a yellow a vaccine adverse reaction yellow card. So this this is, to my mind, a propaganda exercise by the MHRA to try and convince the public it is doing something when in fact the only thing it's doing is assisting the pharmaceutical industry, the vaccine industry to peddle their products. It's, what is the word? It's disgusting, I think. Mm. Let's put it into context by having a look at this um, email that was sent to the UK column from Mary. Uh, Dear Brian, I've just read an article in the Daily Skeptic by Dr. Richard Enos, 
maybe one for Debbie to look at. The paper he evaluated was by Professor Sarah Stock et al at Edinburgh University. He states it's seriously flawed. Uh, the study finds 17% higher miscarriage rate in the vaccinated, but pretends it doesn't. So it's flawed because what it actually finds, the paper doesn't properly present because presumably it was too disturbing. And uh, Mary goes on to say, my husband was in hospital during the summer with pneumonia following complications of chemotherapy. When receiving his IV antibiotics, the charge nurse inquired as to why he wasn't vaccinated. I informed her that both of us were not vaccinated as the COVID jab was not a vaccine, but a gene-based therapy with alarming safety signals and poor efficacy. She stated she knew this and stated the following. Yes, I held off getting it as I wanted to have a baby and my big sister was pregnant with her first child. The midwife pressure, uh, pressured her into getting the COVID jab and the next day she miscarried. My sister asked the midwife, was this the uh, COVID vaccine that caused this? Uh, the midwife apparently dropped her eyes, looked away and did not answer. Are we... Uh, also, we're seeing lots of collapses, blood clotting disorders, strokes, heart attacks, and neurological problems after the jab. And uh, I've just finished the uh, email off here. Mary says, I find it hard to bear at times that such evil is taking place. My husband passed away on the 21st of August after a brave fight against a late diagnosis of advanced esophageal uh, cancer. He was never ill in his life, but due to covid he was diagnosed over the phone with acid reflux and his severe symptoms manifested just four to six weeks before his emergency endoscopy. He was, and I am a member of UK Column. We always looked forward to watching you and the team. The first time I watched you after Bill's death was very emotional for me. I would, I would always have the lunch ready for 1 p.m. for us to sit down and watch the UK Column. Um, a very poignant and emotional uh, email David, uh, yet another person clearly telling the real story about what's been happening out there. Yes, and how, how many voices are being ignored in the mainstream? We'll get to, to this more later in the news. Uh, and I would also add in a couple of things. Firstly, uh, we are putting out a, an interview on Thursday this week uh, with Professor Enos. Uh, so uh, people can catch up on his um, views and analysis then. Um, and also, uh, the third leading cause of death as revealed in the United States is uh, medical error or, or, or medical intervention more generally. And uh, there's a call for all medics to be more honest about this and to actually record it properly on death certificates so, some, so that something can be, be done because first you've got to measure it if you're going to improve it. Um, Nothing on that subject, though, from uh, vac from uh, Medicine Safety Week, I take it. No, <laughs> no, is the answer. OK, well, just um, uh, briefly, Mark, you picked up on the Washington Post here where the CDC in America was warning of tough winter as flu, RSV and COVID collide. So it appears that the agenda we see in UK is, is also unfolding in America. Uh, yes, uh, it's largely more fear porn. It's so full of speculation that it's a wonder they even run these news stories sometimes. Uh, they got to fill space, it seems. Uh, it says here, basically, 
the United States continues to experience an unusually high and early uptick in flu and respiratory syncytial virus infections. They call that RSV, straining uh, the uh, hospital system and things like that. But uh, they say they're confronting uh, elevated levels of various viruses, and all of this is roaring back as pre-pandemic life returns, and many Americans, particularly children, lack immunity. The CDC uh, issued an advisory about respiratory viruses to thousands of healthcare providers in an attempt to bolster testing, treatment, and vaccination. So this convergence of things is being massaged to try and uh, increase vaccinations, particularly among children. And that would be the regular flu vaccinations for adults as well. But the, the COVID vax, which isn't really a vaccine at all, but an mRNA gene modifier, boost that for children and try and close these gaps. So the regular flu combined with COVID, combined with RSV doesn't uh, kill or badly sicken a lot of people, they claim. And, uh, it says here also with increased RSV infections, and I'd like to see more data on that, a rising number of flu cases and the ongoing burden of COVID-19 in our communities, there's no doubt we'll face some challenges this winter, said Don O'Connell, Assistant Health and Human Services Secretary for Preparedness and Response. But it's, it's important to remember that RSV and the flu are not new and we have safe and effective vaccines for COVID-19 and the flu. But in fact, not just the COVID jab, but the flu vaccine has caused untold problems in the US, not typically death, but a worsening of health in many cases. It's interesting though, as you read this article toward the end, they admit that uh, all the COVID measures for two years, all the social distancing and masking uh, actually contributed to people having less immunity. Uh, it says here, the lack of exposure to other viruses besides COVID, when people practice social distancing and wore masks to avoid COVID, that's contributed to the current situation. Uh, and this is uh, Rachel Walensky, no less, head of the CDC saying this, all of that regular exposure that usually happens that bolsters immunity year after year didn't happen. If you go two years without getting an infection, without getting the protection from infection, and then all of a sudden, boom, everybody goes from zero to three years, everybody from zero to three years old gets RSV, you see the impact on healthcare. So they're, they're now admitting that the social distancing and the masking actually worsened people's immunity because it was like they were living in a bubble and, and their body was not challenged and uh, um, uh, stimulated to uh, uh, produce its own immunity. Yeah. So they're not saying it very loudly, but they're admitting, they're admitting that the, the distancing and the, and the masking uh, has brought on other illnesses. Uh, now so, we, need to, we need more data on those other illnesses, but that's an interesting admission. So their, their policy made matters worse, what a surprise. Uh, but David, on Friday, we were talking about uh, the Atlantic uh, publication and, and uh, a, an article that uh, came out uh, but you've got more on the Atlantic here. Yes, Patrick introduced this story. So the, the Atlantic was, was running an article, let's declare an, a pandemic amnesty. Uh, we need to forgive one another for what we did and said when we were in the dark 
about COVID. And here we see a comparison of the Atlantic's current view with where they were maybe around a year ago when they had articles such as some Americans no longer believe in the common good. They are uh, thinking only of themselves. That's referring to the unvaccinated. Vaccine refusals don't get to dictate terms anymore. The unvaccinated people need to bear the burden. And my favourite, the anti-vaccine right brought human sacrifice to America. And I thought, I actually missed that one at the time. Could they actually mean this? Well, yes. Um, we've got here the graphic that they chose. The Atlantic chose this. Um, so you go back one slide. Yeah, there we go. This, this graphic of of uh, someone about to be cut open and sacrificed to some some um, mythical god, the Atlantic said that was the that was the graphic that best described the anti-vaccine right wing, um, and they continued on this subject. Since last summer, the conservative campaign against vaccination has claimed thousands of lives for no ethically justifiable purpose, says Kurt Anderson. In other words. What we've experienced, certainly since the middle of 2021, is literally ritual human sacrifice on a mass scale. The real thing, comparable to innumerable ghastly historical versions. That's how extreme the Atlantic was. Literally human sacrifice. If you said, well, actually, I have concerns about vaccine. Is it really safe and effective? I don't think lockdowns are working. I think they're counterproductive. You were literally engaged in mass scale, ritual human sacrifice. That's how vast the error was. They're not mentioning that just now, and we are, we'll come to more on that in a moment. Um, getting back to the figures of what the data was actually showing, those of us who were coming up with a different line to the Atlantic were referring to the data, of course. Here we've got from the OpenVERS database, um, miscarriages, um, reported in the United States. And you see it, it from 2020, it comes from essentially zero on the, on the VERS. This is not total miscarriages. This is reported via the VERS database. It comes from zero to a very high figure and then peaks a second time in, in January, February 22, and then uh, falls away. And if you see uh, the total graphs reported on VERS for uh, miscarriage, miscarriage and stillbirth, reported as a, as a side effect of vaccines over time, back to 1990, you'll see that what we've seen, 21 and 22, is absolutely unprecedented. Historically, it dwarfs everything that's happened before. This is a huge, clear, bright signal that there's something badly wrong with the vaccine safety case, that, that people are being killed, that people are being harmed, and of course these same people continue to be ignored, both by regulators such as the CDC um, and our own MHRA, and of course by the mainstream media. Um, there are a few people speaking out about this, um, increasingly powerfully, um, and these tend to be people who have been speaking out about this for years. Now they're getting a little more traction, and they're uh, calls for justice and honesty about all of these, and, and clarity indeed, um, and openness about what actually went on during the COVID lockdown and vaccination programme are becoming ever louder. Uh, we've got one of our favourites here, Christine Anderson, uh, a, a member of the European Parliament. Um, the people have been lied to. Uh, it was a gigantic lie. And uh, on this lie, 
everything that governments, especially in the Western democracies, did uh, to infringe on, on uh, people's rights, to take away their freedom, to uh, lock them uh, in their homes, uh, imposing curfews, all of this was based on that gigantic lie. Ursula von der Leyen, uh, EU Commission President, is now under a lot of pressure, and rightly so. The people have a right to know what went on in these contracts with her exchange of SMS with C. Pfizer uh, Bourla. The people need to know who they can hold responsible and accountable for whatever may have gone on behind the scenes. And things are changing now. Their house of cards is tumbling down, and it is doing so rightfully. And I will say it again, it was never, never ever about public health. It was never about breaking any waves. It was always about breaking people. But, and that's the good news, they failed. It didn't work. And that I am very proud of, and I'm proud of the people that I am so honored to be allowed to represent, and I will continue to do just that. Thank you. So, yes, it was never about public health, and I think that is the message that we have to be repeating loud and clear. We need to know what it was about. And the whole idea of accountability, we need to be holding people to account. That's why an amnesty is the very opposite of what we should be having. And, of course, we're still concealing not talking about in the mainstream press are concealing and not talking about, and the government is concealing and not talking about those that have been injured. Here we have Matt Letizier uh, speaking out on their behalf. I've sat in, uh, in a meeting this afternoon at Parliament at Portcullis House where Dr. Asim al gave a presentation, uh, and in amongst the crowd were a lot of the vaccine injured. And these people are crying out for some help and just to be noticed and our media have completely turned their back on them. I spoke Lisa Shaw, who worked for the BBC, one of their own. She died last year, last May, and it is now October 2022. She died May 2021. I spoke to her husband today. Despite the fact that the vaccine manufacturer is on her death certificate, despite that fact, they still won't pay him out from the vaccine compensation scheme. Absolutely disgusting. This is, and it appears that the tactics from these people are that we will stretch it out as far as we can and hope people get fed up and don't keep badgering us for your, for your 120,000 pounds. I'm sorry, that's not good enough in this day and age. Uh, and quite frankly, the media in this country uh, have got a lot to answer for. Uh, I think they could have, if, if we had a independent media, this crisis would have been over about two and a half years ago. In other words, before it started, and he's absolutely correct, uh, we uh, showed on uh, Extra Time last week uh, this death certificate we see here. Um, this is tweeted out by Gareth Eve in order to dispel claims that he's um, putting out rumours and dispro uh, dis 
disproven uh, misinformation. He had to tweet out his own wife's death certificate uh, to prove that what he's saying is true. And uh, the conclusion in the death certificate died due to complications of an AstraZeneca COVID vaccination. It couldn't be clearer. Uh, going back briefly, if we may, to the idea of an amnesty, we have here the column's favourite cartoonist, Bob Moran. Uh, he covers it rather well. So the uh, two women are about to be burned at the stake as witches. And uh, the Inquisitor's one says, oops, turns out they weren't witches after all. And as they're engulfed in the flames, the other Inquisitor shouts uh, into the fire. Uh, mistakes were made on both sides. Um, and uh, finally, we have a little video that illustrates the nature of the calls for amnesty, uh, we think rather well. Yeah, it turns out, yeah, it turns out that this was all a lie. Yep. I was really just kind of hoping we could put all this behind us and move on. Is that like, is that an apology? Because it doesn't really sound like one. I know that I called you a grandma killer, but I really just wanted what was best for you. I actually couldn't visit my grandma in the hospital or even attend her funeral, but my heart was in the right place. I also lost my business and my job. I had good intentions and my kids' social, mental, and physical development was also hurt. Listen, we just didn't know. I knew, lots of people knew, but you refused to listen. Instead, you you called us names and wished death upon us. Let's just call a truce, okay? But according to your hat, you care about social justice. What does that have to do with anything? Why don't you care about justice here? I don't hear you demanding apologies or reparations. Because that would have to come from me and we just need to move on. So you don't believe in accountability for systemic injustices when you're the one guilty. Can't we just build back and move forward? I don't wanna build back a system that allowed this to occur. Don't you want peace? I found this sign on the ground. Maybe you recognize it. I think that covers it rather well. Uh, yeah, David, just coming back to what Matt, Matt Letizia was saying about uh, um, Gareth, sorry, Mr. Eve uh, waiting, not able to get compensation. I mean, I just want to make the point once again, the compensation scheme is already dis dis despicable on many levels, never mind it's not even paying out, but £120,000 covers nothing in terms of medical expenses or, or you know, in, in his case, the death of his wife and so on. It's not really compensation at all. It's despicable that the government isn't even willing to go that far, uh, but perhaps we understand it because if they did, on a more general uh, level, they would be admitting that there was a problem. Yes, the, the despicable nature of it has, as you say, quite correctly, many facets. Um, £120,000 is, is a minuscule sum for the, the problems that many people have been left with and ongoing costs and ongoing losses. Um, and uh, you have to be 60% disabled to qualify for anything. So you can have 50% disability due to, undisputably due to a COVID vaccine, and the United Kingdom government scheme will give you not one penny. You are ineligible. Yeah, yeah, it's it's shocking. And um, we and uh, other people must continue to press for the right answers. And of course, the MHRA cannot be allowed to hide behind what are clearly lies as to what it claims to be doing in order to protect public health. But more on that in the coming days and weeks. Uh, well, David, your ladies were talking about the possibility of a truce and uh, peace. And of course, one place that is absolutely not being talked about is Ukraine. So 
Uh, let's um, do a little bit of an update with what, what's going on. And I am going to give a big thank you to Defence Politics Asia uh, because they've had some particularly good and poignant reporting over the last few days. But to keep this very, very simple, um, what, what is happening at the moment are, are fights along really the whole length of the front. Um, largely, the Ukrainians are, are attacking with very, very small forces, with maybe a few armoured vehicle and uh, a few hundred men. And the net result is that they are being pushed back by the Russians with losses. But the Russians have con uh, continued to put a very strong push to take Bakhmud, uh, which we've got on screen in this particular screenshot capture from Defence Politics Asia. And it's clear that the Russians are intent on ca uh, catching, um, sorry, capturing this strategic area in order to start breaking through the front. Meanwhile, on the rest of the front, very, very small groups of Ukrainians are being incredibly brave, but they're suffering from the fact that they have not got the men or the vehicles or the combined arms to actually attack the Russian positions. Now, I'm going to bring this uh, gentleman on screen and Defence Politics Asia featured this man in a little video clip. I'm going to apologise because, um, uh, or possibly it's going to run in the video, we'll see. I may not have uh, the clip, but uh, if we uh, just have a look at what this man was talking about, uh, he makes a video where if you look at his eyes, it's very clear to see that He's very close to tears. He says that he and his men are surrounded in their trench at the front. And my point is that this man has no idea that he's really there fighting a proxy war for the US, UK, NATO and the EU. And the real plan is the globalist expansion. And that requires regime change in Russia. So I'm going to apologise. I haven't got the clip. I will make sure that the audience can have a look at that. Uh, because it is so poignant and it really brings home to you uh, what these Ukrainian fighters are, are having to put up with. So small groups of men in trenches in appalling conditions. And of course, they're now having to face uh, reinforced forces from uh, Russia. But all of this, if we just put that back on screen, um, I just want to add uh, this in here that it's the US and UK, NATO and the EU are going to continue fighting what is essentially a globalist war to the last Ukrainian. And uh, it is extremely uh, poignant that this man, uh, did he survive at the end of the video? We don't know, um, but he's clearly telling it as, as it is. So if I just uh, move on to this one here, this is where we get more reality of the front. And it's another video which has been taken from the Ukrainian side. I'm going to play it on screen and just uh, talk through it. Uh, but what you will witness here is clearly the use of uh, phosphorus by the Russians. And of course, this is happening because the Russians are forced to try and remove um, large but mainly smaller groups of fighters who are heavily dug in. Uh, in deserted urban areas. So there's no doubt as to what's happening here. And if you watch this uh, little uh, clip, one of the um, men talks about phosphorus, so you can actually hear him speak in Ukrainian, but this is truly horrific 
uh, what is happening on the front. But of course, the horror is uh, unleashed by both sides. But if people are getting squeamish about the Russian use of uh, white phosphorus, let's remind ourselves uh, what uh, has taken place previously. So here is the US Air Force uh, using phosphorus in Vietnam in 1966. Uh, we can go back to the First World War, where, of course, phosphorus was used by both sides. Uh, we can come more up to date with an airburst, uh, which is being used by claims by Israeli forces over Gaza. So, um, David, I'm just going to throw this back to you before I do a little more comment on this, but the war at the moment in Ukraine is truly outrageous. And uh, what should be happening is a concerted call by the UK and the West for a truce so that there can be some form of proper movement towards a negotiated settlement. Yes, we've, we've seen the war move into its, its fourth phase now with uh, the Russian mobilization of reservists. And like you, I'm, I'm relying on unconventional sources for information and analysis because the mainstream and the mainstream and government sources are both um, either absent or very unreliable and 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 uh, and uh, are nothing short of propaganda. Um, uh, one uh, website that I found to be very useful is one called History Legends. Uh, I, I, a, a website formerly uh, dedicated to looking at historical conflict, uh, but now also analysing the ongoing conflict in the Ukraine. And one of the points he makes is the Russians announced 300,000 reservists being called up. But of course, you don't necessarily announce the accurate figures because war is all about deception. And it could be many, many more. It could be a million. And in either event, this has quite clearly stopped the Ukrainian advances. So the wars entered another phase. There's no prospect that I can see of Ukraine making any headway from this point. And this simply emphasizes the fact that there should be a call for peace and negotiated settlement and an end to the bloodshed. It's certainly in the interests of the Ukraine and its people. It's also in the interests of the people in the eastern Donbass, who clearly do not wish to be part of Ukraine. Um, and it would be in the, 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 the interests of the Russians who will also be fighting and dying on, on the front line. Um, it's unfortunate and, and very, very sad that there's not only no movement from the West to try, to try and resolve and end this conflict, but in fact, quite the reverse. It seems to be efforts to prolong and deepen it instead. Okay, thank you for that, David. Well, let's just move uh, through a little bit more social media here, but we start to get a picture. Uh, and this is Ukrainian officials getting very excited because American NASAM systems, so these are supposedly advanced surface-to-air uh, missiles together with another supposedly advanced surface-to-air missile, ASPEED. These are now arriving in Ukraine. And the comment uh, in the... Uh, tweet is these weapons will significantly strengthen the uh, Ukrainian army and will make our skies safer. We will continue to shoot down the enemy targets attacking us. Thank you to our partners, Norway, Spain and the US. But of course, um, this is completely misplaced hopes that another one, Western wonder weapon will save Ukraine, uh, because the truth is that there will not be enough of these missile systems to be effective. They are not capable enough as a 
as a missile themselves. And of course, they're not going to be put into a situation where the Ukrainians have got the um, combined wherewithal to use these as a result um, of the damage that Ukraine and the particularly the electricity infrastructures already suffered. So uh, the West, of course, bigging it up. So here's Newsweek. What are NASAM's top US made missile defense systems are heading to Ukraine? This is false narrative. And what it's doing is raising the hopes of the Ukrainians. Uh, the truth is going to be rather different. Uh, but of course, what is it going to do? Well, it's going to help the profits for the military industrial uh, com um, complex, Raytheon uh, being one of the major players here. Um, but if we uh, look at the detail of these uh, missile systems, I've just taken um, the Wikipedia here as a simple overview. What you actually find is uh, both the NASAMs and also the ASPID systems are very old and they've undergone a number of upgrades, which has not taken them into the latest technology. And what Russia is using at the moment out, out, outpaces these missile systems without any question. So they're outdated, they're not capable of doing the job, and they won't be supplied in sufficient quantities to do the job. Uh, but what's this going to do? It's going to raise the hope of uh, Ukrainians that uh, this is going to do it. And of course, all backed up by amazing propaganda. I couldn't resist just taking a little bit of this about these systems, uh, that these are going to completely change the war in Ukraine, uh, which they're not. Uh, so what we're really looking at here is uh, uh, it's hype, it's propaganda. And if we follow on through other Western reports, the Daily Mail here, I think this is just a disgraceful article because of course it's, it's got no real substance on it, but the headline is Putin's threat to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine gives insight into the mind of a Russian Fuhrer who's realized he might just lose the war he stupidly started. So this is as we're at the point where Ukraine has lost well over 40% of its electricity infrastructure, the country is falling apart. But I picked this one out because if you have a look at the text, uh, you'll see they're not only commenting on um, the possible use of nuclear weapons, uh, but they're also talking about the use of white phosphorus and thermobaric weapons. Uh, not that the West has those or views those sorts of weapons anywhere, uh, but this is the real meat of it. Uh, Putin vilified uh, by the mail, uh, but then we have a big picture of uh, Zelensky with this comment underneath. If today President Zelensky, pictured on November the 3rd, was presented with an opportunity to have the highly capable Ukrainian secret services and special forces smuggle a dirty bomb into Red Square in Moscow, he would not take it. Uh, to which I can only just add, oh really? Um, but not a lot of evidence there, Mike, to uh, support that claim. And um, I'll just remind people that we still have no detail uh, from the US about their Ukrainian biolabs and what they were actually doing. Um, but what is moving at the moment is this incredible headline. I initially sourced it from social media here. Uh, Italian newspaper La Repubblica, the USA and NATO uh, allow peace talks on Ukraine to start if Kiev uh, recaptures Kyrgyzstan. 
And I thought this was just such an incredible statement. Uh, so we checked it out before coming live with the news. And indeed, this is, uh, this is genuine. So La, uh, La Republica here reporting it. And um, I've just taken one of the small subheadlines here, confidential relations, relations between Washington and Brussels identify a short-term negotiation window, reach the banks of the Dnipro and push for a ceasefire from a position of strength. So I'm watching uh, your face very closely on this, David. It now seems that uh, the West, of course, realizes that Ukraine is being taken apart, uh, but Ukraine is not going to be allowed to move towards peace until it's achieved presumably what is a, a Western dictated objective, namely retake Kyrgyzstan, which isn't going to happen. Well, this is, this is, this is incredible. Like, a, that the West is actually dictating the peace terms. Okay, that, that, that's incredible. But also, the Ukrainian troops are what? Not very far from Kyrgyzstan. Was it 25 miles or something? Something of that order. So we're saying that we... we, we if they move another 25 miles, then, then we can have peace. But we can't sit down now and negotiate and maybe get that line moved without the blood being spilt to do it. Um, you know, surely, the, surely the whole idea of a negotiated peace is you negotiate. Um, you negotiate what the final demarcation lines are going to be from one country and another. You negotiate where the borders are going to be. And... Um, is it not worth trying that rather than sacrificing more lives to um, move 25 miles forward? It seems it seems both a, a very odd direction for that that requirement to come from, and just a profoundly strange requirement because you're saying, well, you, we're okay with the eastern Donbass and we're okay with the southern shores of the Azov Sea and we're okay with the, the whole of the Crimea, all things which. A few months ago were absolutely red lines and were totally unacceptable and must be returned and we would never ever compromise on. So we're okay with all of that, but we just need another 25 miles uh, up to the Deepner River um, and then, then we're fine. It, it's, it shows the incoherence of the position. Uh, thank you for that, David. Well, we'll do more work on what is actually being said by Mr. Stoltenberg and colleagues, uh, but we'll just leave it on this image, which is... Uh, 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 <laughs> Boris, um, while he was in uh, he was office mayor of London at the, at the time. Uh, oh, mayor of London, thank you. Yeah, and he decided to uh, reveal himself to the public like this, but unfortunately, there was a fault on the um, what do you call it? The line aerial runway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. aerial runway, and he ended up ha hanging in front of his audience. So the comment from uh, the East here is: Bank of England expects UK to fall into the longest ever recession. Uh, but I, I think that something else is being shown here. This is how the UK is now viewed in the eyes of the non-Western world. And uh, let's uh, remember that it was Boris Johnson who is widely believed, I certainly believe it's true, uh, that he's the man who, uh, sorry for the repetition there in the text, he destroyed the Ukraine-Russia peace negotiations. So um, this is the calibre of politician in Britain. It doesn't matter whether they're blue or red. Uh, surely we need to get rid of political parties and people should stand uh, as an individual in Westminster. That would solve the party uh, political problem. 
Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, or you can pick up something at the UK Column shop, including uh, vouchers or gift cards for Christmas, if you want to give somebody a Christmas present of a UK Column membership. And I just want to say thank you very much to Linda uh, for uh, a spectacular uh, effort uh, there. So yeah. uh, thanks for that. Uh, but please, uh, in any case, share uh, anything you find on the various platforms. Okay, and we're also going to say a big thank you to Louise Collins and uh, the ladies from Public Protection Wales who were broadcasting for um, two days over the weekend in order to raise money to protect children from the government's sexual education grooming. And uh, this is the total that I found this morning. So I'm going to say well done to you all because that was a tremendous amount of work uh, to protect our children. Well, let's move on. And uh, Mark, you've been out and about in the States. You've got some pictures here of people that you've met uh, because I think you've been asking a few questions how they feel on the campaign trail. Yeah, just got back uh, to Texas from Michigan, a yearly sojourn that I do. And I, I hand out a lot of uh, flyers, offshoots of American Free Press and other literature, some of which promotes UK Column. And uh, the mass media cartel, of course, is losing credibility. I talk to a lot of people in diners and gas stations and people such as this about the media. And it's becoming almost universal that the media can't be trusted anymore. These Illinois activists, these particular people were on their way to a November 4 through 12 uh, freedom rally, reawaken America rally in Branson, Missouri, oh, a couple of hundred miles to the west of where I saw them here in Illinois. Mandate freedom and other sentiments were on their vehicles. And we had quite a chat about the situation, about the COVID jabs and everything. And so they, they were going to what sounded like a pretty big rally in that famous country and Western city, kind of an entertainment Mecca there in Southern Missouri in the Ozark Mountains. That's what Branson is. and. Uh, we talked a little bit about election fraud and things like that, but that's a shout out to my friends there from Illinois that I just met briefly. Uh, yeah, the Brookings Institution, everybody's favorite think tank. Now, a little while ago, David talked about the Atlantic uh, now getting uh, all um, you know, in a, in a flutter and now wanting amnesty for the excesses that it clearly made in, in calling people that uh, were skeptical of the vaccines and calling them vaccine deniers, all sorts of names, child sacrifice promoters. Well, now we have another issue that's following, curiously, a very similar pattern. Now the worst kind of denier to be, at least equally on par with being a COVID-19 denier or, or someone that, you know, if you're skeptical of vaccines, that means you're killing people. Now right on par with that is if you're an election denier, and I swear it's getting even worse to be an election denier, than it is to be a vaccine skeptic. It is getting so ridiculous here, it's just beyond the pale. Uh, the Brookings Institution, which of course is Bilderberg connected, they, they always pass themselves off as so scholarly and so you know academic and unbiased and nonpartisan. But as I've said so many times before, when they say nonpartisan, they mean technically not Democrat or Republic, Republican, excuse me, but they're very partisan in terms of internationalism and globalism versus nationalism and self-sufficiency and things like that. And so they're just partisan in a different way. Now, if you look at these actual articles, there's two that I sent in. 
uh, they did a two-part series, Democracy on the Ballot. And this one you're showing how many election deniers are on the ballot in November and what's their likelihood of success. Well, they estimate, and it's probably fairly accurate, that there are 345 candidates in the U.S. for tomorrow's November 8 midterm elections at the state and federal levels, Secretary of State, Attorney General, state legislators, federal legislators, and so on. The, the U.S. House is in the balance. The Republicans barely have a margin in the Senate. Now they're hoping they can take the House back. So the powers that be are very worried. And yeah, you're showing the other one. What do election deniers want? And what's amazing here is that no matter how many people and, and, and what, whatever their position might be in society, and many of them are credible people, no matter how many people raise this issue, the, the media in concert with think tanks like Brookings just categorically say that all these people are wrong and none of them could ever have a point and none of them could ever pronounce even one word of validity. They're saying there's no veracity to their claims whatsoever, which is an incredible claim to make. Uh, now, Mark, you know, if, for instance, yes, Mark if, if, if I may just come in there, what I found extraordinary about the second, this second article that you're talking the audience through, democracy on the ballot, what do election deniers want, straight away goes into the fact that uh, it's all based around the COVID-19 pandemic, that if you challenge as I understand it from my uh, fairly brief read this morning, if you challenge the COVID-19 policies, uh, that automatically means that you're an election denier as well. Have I got that correct? Yeah, there's a conflating going on. Uh, January 6th, you, you, didn't, you didn't trust the election results, so th therefore you're associated with vandalism and terrorism and insurrection. And now COVID deniers, those that are skeptical of vaccines and never really believed COVID was what they told, told us it was, and election deniers are all being conflated together. They're all being lumped together, and now they're enemies of the state. And of course, the Brookings Institution is just a adjunct of the state, like most of these Bilderberg-connected think tanks. Um, on part one that you're referring to, it says here, one of the central roots of the election denier movement now it's a movement all of a sudden, lies in the COVID-19 pandemic, the explosion of the pandemic incurred in 2020 and an election year before vaccines were available. Notice the inherent idea that vaccines are totally trustworthy and effective. In the first eight months of the year, when most decisions about the fall elections were being made, over 138,000 Americans had died of COVID which is pure speculation based on all the reasons to doubt that data that we've talked about on this show. And uh, it goes on to talk about the fact that um, mail-in balloting exploded and went way beyond normal, normal parameters due to COVID. But then it, it basically says that that's okay, that this unprecedented explosion of mail-in balloting, and, the, and Brookings is admitting itself that it was unprecedented in scope, that that could be automatically trusted even though mail-in balloting traditionally has been limited to the homebound, the indigent, um, you know, uh, people that were uh, physically, physically limited, uh, soldiers overseas, although uh, electronically they can vote now, uh, that, that should be something very easy to solve. But um, there's so much that can be talked about here. It does say, on the other hand, these changes, uh, the availability of mail-in and absentee ballots 
the idea that they would lead to enormous fraud uh, provided the basis on which Trump would declare the election fraudulent. This was new in American elections, it says in this Brookings thing. Never before had these types of voting been an issue. That's total BS. I worked for a year, as I've talked about before, as an election official, and absentee and mail-in balloting was always very strictly regulated. Uh, you had to have the proper and valid signature on the, on the envelope that the mail-in ballot, the absentee ballot, would arrive in, and you'd have to have a way of verifying that the actual voter filled out that ballot. And so everything was very, very regulated, and there was an inherent limit on just how many people uh, and just how many excuses would be allowed for absentee balloting. And so for it to take such a uh, huge surge during COVID and then for, for Brookings to say, uh, you know, why should anyone expect there to be any problems? Uh, it is just the height of absurdity um, because already it was something very tightly regulated and to loosen things that quickly to that degree would naturally bring lots of questions that need to be asked and naturally uh, generate a lot of risks in terms of the overall process. Now, what else is amazing here is the, another, the other Brookings uh, article about how many election deniers there are. It says here that although no one has ever found proof of widespread and or systemic fraud in the, in the 2020 presidential election, as former Attorney General Bob Barr and others affirmed, the persistent and high volume repetition by Trump and his high profile surrogates has convinced many other Republicans that the election was stolen. For one thing, Bob Barr, uh, his name was, um, I believe Bob Barr, they call him Bill Barr, but the Attorney General Barr, uh, him and Trump were on the outs at that time. And so to cite, the former AG Barr as a authoritative source on whether these claims of election uh, fraud were valid is itself an invalid thing. Uh, he is not a credible source at all. Uh, many of the sources that I cite in an article just posted on the UK Column website are much more credible and cover all the key states. But uh, the, the Brookings Institution even goes so far as to name different states uh, where they have the most election liars, election deniers, excuse me, on the ballot. Arizona has 31 election denier candidates on the ballot. Florida, 21. Georgia, 19. Michigan, 24. Pennsylvania, 37. Texas, 21. Wisconsin, 21. That includes many of the key swing states. But that's where they say the most election deniers are on the ballot, according to those numbers. And another absurdity spouted by Brookings is they say that it's crazy for election skeptics to be concerned and to, to assert that only election officials should handle the drop boxes that sprouted up everywhere across the country during the November 2020 election. How is it absurd for the citizens to demand that election officials control those drop boxes, control what ballots go in and control what ballots come out and make sure there's validity there? Um, as a matter of fact, the only way that should ever be done, and it should be very limited, should be by election officials, not by private third-party uh, vendors. And yet Brookings is, de is defending the idea that we should completely trust third-party vendors to handle these drop boxes for these uh, you know, explosive numbers of mail-in ballots. Mm -hmm. So the Brookings arguments just are, are really quite absurd. Um, 
they're basically saying that any concern of any magnitude is unfounded and just trust the system. Just leave it alone. Just trust the system. That's what they're saying. And the, the evidence is just completely contrary to that assertion. So does electronic, uh, do electronic systems help? You've got an American Free Press article here, Mark, about uh, the Electronic Registration Information Center. Eric. Yeah, well, I, I had talked on UK Column fairly recently, you might recall, about Mark Benioff, who is a large owner in Time Magazine and a member of the Board of Trustees of the World Economic Forum, and Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of the state of Georgia, the top election official there, who's a Republican, no less, farmed out the entire voter registration list of Georgia voters to that third party vendor, Salesforce, owned by Benioff. Well, here's another kid on the block, as you're showing in this AFP article. Um, the Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC, is now operating in 32 states and the District Columbia, and the, the District of Columbia, excuse me, arguably illegally. According to VoterGA.org's Garland Favrito, who heads up that watchdog group, quote, VoterGA has filed a lawsuit versus the state of Georgia against outsourcing voter registration data to third parties, and we plan to expand that to include ERIC. See, so it's not just Salesforce, now it's ERIC. And the American Policy Center is another source that called this out. And there is a gentleman, let me see, Eric was started in 2012, this is according to the American Policy Center, using George Soros funds donated through the Pew Charitable Trust. Eric was conceived and organized by a highly unethical leftist, according to the uh, APC, named David Becker, who has spent a lifetime trying to defeat the conservative, conservative agenda in America. Most state officials choose to defend or ignore it. Even supposed conservatives want to hide the truth. This must stop. America must recognize Eric for what it is, the epicenter of the voter fraud in the nation today. And there is a quote I sent in. I'm not sure if you have that quote uh, singled out. It's right there, yes. Uh, the very construct, this is according to Kat Stansell of the APC, the very construct of Eric is designed for fraud and data gathering, not voter roll maintenance. Member states must turn in all data from their voter rolls, both old and new, as well as all records from motor vehicle divisions and every public service agency in the state. Eric takes all these lists and adds the USPS data and social security records, get that, from the participating states. All of this information on every person living in each state is stored in Eric's massive AI system. Whether you are a voter or not, whether you are a citizen or not, your name and personal information are stored with Eric, the Electronic Registration Information Center. And see, so it's not just vote casting and vote counting that election watchdogs are pointing out in the face of these Brookings broadsides. It's the actual handling of voter registration lists and data, some of it very sensitive, including social security, and, and storing that data in these third-party databases outside the purview and control of the public. So the mass media cartel and Brookings, its ally, are really going 
uh, to desperate levels to try and uh, put their finger in the dike and prevent a flood of truth from coming out. Okay, thank you for that, Mark. Just to finish off very quickly, um, we're, let's just uh, put up your article, uh, which has gone up this morning on UK Column website, America in Distress. UK media joins US media's attack on credible claims of 2020 election fraud. Um, what should people be looking for in this article? Uh, what the main theme, sort of the over, overarching theme, is that in recent years, and especially picking up steam uh, as the midterms approach, the official election day, again being tomorrow on the 8th of November, the, the British media and European media, but particularly the UK media, the Guardian, the Daily Mail, etc., have fancied themselves to be experts on US elections. And they're elbowing, elbowing their way in and making all these claims right along the lines of Brookings that everybody that raises any issues about um, any of these election, election related matters, uh, not trusting who's handling the drop boxes for the mail-in ballots, not trusting totally the electronic voting machines that are programmed with secret proprietary software in which, in which the vote can be flipped from the inside and the machines can be hacked from the outside. If you raise any issues about any of that, according to this uh, this uh, in, in invasion, you might say, of the British media into U.S. affairs that I think they really don't understand, uh, that then you're again you're a, an election denier online with being a COVID denier. But at the end of the article, I go through a lot of things, and I encourage uh, viewers to to read this piece. But at the end, I go through the states of Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Michigan and Arizona, these key swing states, and I give examples. And uh, for, for in Georgia, there were improper chain of custody forms for 107,000 ballots statewide. Over 1.7 million original ballot images were lost or destroyed in 70 Georgia counties. And in all of these states, there were enough anomalies to actually change the election outcome between Biden and Trump. Uh, in Pennsylvania, the 2020 election was, was certified with 700,000 more votes than voters. Um, you can just pick them out here. Uh, in Michigan, uh, a letter from the chair of the Senate Elections Committee to Senate colleagues acknowledged that there are 800,000 ineligible voters on the Michigan voter rolls. Yep. Okay. And and so forth, that the data is literally staggering in these swing states. And even if half of these things were untrue, even if the election watchdog groups missed the mark in some areas, and I'm not saying their research is flawless, but if even half the stuff was untrue, it would warrant a very serious investigation. And not only is a serious investigation not happening, but to even suggest such a thing is considered a heresy. Yeah. Okay, Mark, thank you very much. And we'll encourage all of our viewers and listeners to uh, get online and have a look at that article. Okay, we're going to move on to uh, climate change in COP27 now. But before we get to that, of course, uh, our king, Charles, uh, who claimed that he was not going to get involved in political matters anymore once he became monarch, uh, decided that he would get involved in political matters. Uh, so while he's not at COP27 to speak, he instead invited COP27 to uh, visit him. Uh, and uh, so the king has hosted a reception at Buckingham Palace a couple of days ago, bringing together over 200 business leaders, decision makers and NGOs ahead of the COP27 summit in Egypt. Uh, and here he is with John Kerry. 
uh, His Majesty heard from guests about practical measures to combat climate change uh, and their plans for COP27 and beyond. So the question is, David, uh, was he hearing about the plans or was he telling them what to do? Uh, but in the meantime, Greta isn't going to be there. Uh, well, Greta's, Greta's revealing the, she's saying the quiet bit out loud, she's saying the West's oppressive and racist capitalist system must be scrapped. So just as uh, COVID was never about public health, uh, the uh, green lobby and the, the environmental disaster that we're told is, is on, on, uh, revealing itself before our very eyes is not about the environment. It's about uh, essentially destruction of the West, destruction of liberty, and introduction of an oppressive one-world government, I would suggest. Um, now, uh, our Prime Minister has gone to COP27. Um, he wasn't going to go, but then someone told him that wasn't acceptable and he had to go, so he dutifully uh, obeyed. Well, David, that's um, not that's not I, quite right. That's not quite right. Well, he wasn't going to go, and then Boris said he was going to go, and Rishi decided that he had to go because Boris was going to be there. So, <laughs> well, are you okay? Well, okay, it could be vanity. It could be it could be weakness and simply taking orders from above. We'll dis we'll agree to disagree on that one. Um, and now he's got there. Well, what's he doing? Well, he's giving away our money because that's going to fix things. Uh, the report here from the Telegraph, Britain opens the door to climate change reparations for poorer nations. Number 10 could be forced to pay out aid cash to countries hit by global warming. Um, so in a meeting in uh, Egypt, UK negotiators backed a last minute agreement to address loss and damage payments to countries badly affected by climate related disasters. So if there's a storm or flood, uh, a hurricane or anything anywhere in the world, uh, transparency, British taxpayers are going to pay for it. So there we go. That's uh, Rishi defending our interests in the way only he can. Yes, indeed. Well, Rishi is not alone uh, because James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, is there as well. So there he is uh, meeting John Kerry by coincidence. Uh, this is what he had to say when he arrived. The Glasgow Climate Pact uh, gave the world the tools to limit the rise in global temperature to one and a half degrees and build a secure and sustainable future. The UK will continue to play a leading role in this mission and the funding we have announced, which is £100 million, uh, uh, will support countries which are facing the devastating impact on climate change to adapt uh, effectively. Now, this is £100 million on top of whatever Rishi is announcing. So no doubt we will see that spending on the Foreign Commonwealth, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office uh, spending website, fcdospending.ukcolumn.org in due course, probably in about a year after they finally publish the data. But nonetheless, it will be there. Uh, but uh, it's not just uh, Rishi, and we'll come on to Boris in a second, and it's not just James Cleverly, but somebody else is there as well. David. The delightful Nicola Sturgeon and indeed Susan Aiken, the leader of Glasgow City Council, for reasons which I have, I can't even imagine, uh, have decided to go too. Nicola Sturgeon here is accused, unfortunately, of uh, rank hypocrisy because just before going to COP27, she cut the eco budget in Scotland because she's got to use the money to pay for. Um, uh, the uh, pay deal for public service workers, which she um, was grandstanding about just a little while ago, that she solved all the problems and there wasn't going to be a winter of discontent in Scotland because Nicola had, had shown her generosity and uh, 
sorted the problem. Well, now, now we're having to find the money, so we're cutting the NHS budget, we're cutting lots of things. And we're cutting 133 million from funding of energy efficiency schemes to help people insulate their homes. This has not been um, very well received as she's gone off to COP27, but we do have a little bit of exclusive video of her low-key and uh, very frugal um, arrival at Sharmal Sheikh. So there you go, your, your money, both British, uh, both English and Scottish taxpayers, well spent there, I'm sure we can all agree. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, not just politicians there, uh, because the Glasgow fin Financial Alliance for Net Zero are there as well. Now, that, let's not forget who's involved with this. This was launched at, at COP26, of course. Uh, so let's not forget who's involved with this. Michael Bloomberg, uh, Mark Carney, Mary Shapiro, uh, Nigel Topping. So all very important people. We've got to remember what on, is on Mark Carney's mind. Uh, he wants to bankrupt anybody that doesn't adapt to the uh, Green New Deal, including companies, companies in the financial system. Uh, they're going to go bankrupt without question. So, uh, G fans, let's look and see which uh, financial system companies uh, are involved. Well, we've got uh, Allianz, we've got AXA, Aviva, uh, BlackRock, Generation. Oh, David Blood from Generation Investment Management. He's, his name should uh, uh, jump out because he was part of the Blood and Gore hedge fund at one point. We've got uh, Citibank, we've got Santander, David Rockefeller Fund, who else have we got here? Uh, Bank of America, and so on. The, the list goes on, that West Group, the list goes on, and so on. Now, if anybody wants uh, more background information on GFANS uh, and the, the economic or the financial shell game that it is, please have a look at this article by Ian Davis on the UK Column website, The Not-So-Great Carbon Reset Part 2, which focuses mainly on GFANS. Uh, I'd also make the point that uh, the word acceleration uh, was very, very uh, key in the GFAN's uh, website there. So also pay attention to this article if you haven't read it yet. Also from Ian Davis, accelerating towards a dark enlightenment. But as we mentioned, Boris is there. Here he is. And this is what he had to say. I think Glasgow uh, was a high point for the struggle against climate change. Then barely three months later, we had the moral and human catastrophe of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. There will be and are many victims of that grotesque miscalculation, but I believe the fight against climate change has been one of the most important collateral victims. Well, he's not the only person with this opinion because Jens Stoltenberg is going uh, and the, the Munich Security Conference is going. Uh, and so Jens Stoltenberg will be speaking uh, because he is particularly concerned that uh, geopolitical problems uh, the, the biggest victim of those, David, is climate change uh, or the climate change campaign. And somehow we've got to learn, uh, find a way to wage our wars without disrupting the climate change agenda. That is his message. Well, well it's, it's the level of insanity is just never fails to shock. I mean, hey, what's he even doing there? And we'll get down to whether it's based on anything rational in the first place or not. <laughs> the fact that we're trying to get, and we've been at this for some time with looking at having you know, low carbon tanks and warships. You know, this is not the function of them. The function of them is when things get absolutely nasty is that your people don't end up dead. That's, that's the function. But no, no, we must, we must find environmentally sustainable ways of killing people. Yeah. Really? Yes. It, it's yeah. deeply worrying that we're on this, that we're on this line. But the other thing buried in this 
segment which we've just reported is the fact that they are claiming to now have the ability to control global temperatures by, by 1.5 degrees. So, so this is not a, we're, we're trying to do this. They're now saying we've got the tools to do it. So these individuals would have us believe that they can control the world's climate. I rather doubt it. Uh, can they, David? Well, no, Brian, you, you're being very dismissive there. You just, your problem is you don't know which, which tools they're referring to. Let me try and elucidate here. We've got, with, with, with all these things, you have to go to um, blogs and individuals doing research because the mainstream media don't report any of this. So we've got a blog here, the No Tricks Zone, uh, we're talking about Tokyo mean temperatures, um, looking at mean temperatures in October, and find that they've actually been falling for decades. So that's falling, that's going down. So Tokyo is getting cooler. Oh, that's a surprise. Um, and they continue, they've looked at a, a, a small island um, out in the Pacific, uh, Tokyo's rural island. Um, and so this is well away from our urban heat uh, island effects. So it's a good measure for what the temperature is doing. And uh, in uh, October 22, the mean temperature was 20.9 degrees, and this is, oh, falling. So from 1987 to 2022, overall, the trend's been down. The trend was quite quite noticeably up until 90, uh, 1998, and then very sharply down thereafter. Overall, it's cooling. Well, that's strange, but don't worry, because we have NASA, right? We have NASA adjustments. Uh, NASA have decided that they're going to adjust the data, the actual data's not any good because, well, it's not showing the right answer. Um, and so here we've got um, the same, that same island, the original data, um, and the uh, unadjusted NASA data, which is almost identical, and then the homogenized, new, improved NASA data, which goes all the way back to 1950, and, well, it shows a very dramatic warming trend. Um, so the conclusion here is there was no warming until that is NASA tampered with the data to produce the warming trend. NASA's trend starts to look like forgery and fakery. So when they say we've got the tools to control the global climate, Brian, your mistake was you thought they actually were talking about the actual global climate. This is not the case. They have the tools to control the data and the publicity concerning the, do the global climate and they view that as being effectively the same thing. And uh, some very nasty man said, he who controls the counting of the votes is, has got the power. Uh, I sense something fairly similar. Yeah, Yeah. okay, uh, right, we're rapidly running out of time, David, but let's uh, finish with your economic section here. Okay, we'll get through this quite quickly because it's, it's, it doesn't require a great deal of deep thought. So we've got the Times here reporting uh, Rishi Sunak. Rishi tells us uh, that the state can't fix all of your problems. Now, he's not going into the fact that the state created those problems. He's just drawing a veil over that. We want an amnesty on that one as well, I suspect. But he's saying, well, we can't fix any pro all these problems and there is going to be difficulties ahead. In the first big interview since he became Prime Minister, Sunak, uh, uh, Sunak admitted that uh, trust in the Conservative Party being damaged by his uh, predecessor Liz Truss's sugar rush budget. Okay. Uh, in contrast, if we go to the Telegraph, 
Uh, they're saying if Sunak and Hunt don't change course, we are heading for a severe recession. The pro-growth agenda of Liz Truss and uh, Kwasi Kwerteng is what the UK economy needed. Well, it's a, I would argue it's about half of what it needed, but still. Um, and, but we, and we will all suffer from its demise. Uh, they continue... Uh, the implosion of the mini-budget and subsequent collapse of administration are in danger of doing uh, the UK economy grave long-term damage. And they talk here about essentially um, that, uh, that, that a, a, a low-tax, high-growth economy is what we should have been going for, and that now with Hunt and Sunak in charge, what we're going to have is a continued stagflation, uh, we're going to have decline, we're going to have high taxes, we're going to have low energy in the economy and basically um, guaranteed failure. Now, that might seem a little um, pessimistic, but uh, it's rather backed up by the Bank of England. Uh, here we see um, Bank of England uh, risks a repeat of mini-budget bond market chaos. So the chaos that that Rishi was brought in to solve, that that's still threatening to happen again. There's problems over the gilts and repo market. Uh, the Bank of England risks hurtling towards another bond market crisis as new signs of strain bubble up and threaten to force another intervention. Traders have warned. And this is rather the issue because the Bank of England have got only one, well, they've, they've got two tools. They can print money or they can, they can raise interest rates. Essentially, that's the option. And they can raise interest rates to, to allegedly fight inflation, but they'll detonate the economy. And when they threaten to do that, they have to print more money and that stokes inflation. And they're very much stuck and they really manifestly don't know what to do. Um, one here just for you, Mike, Financial Times uh, reports that uh, modern monetary theory, about which we have um, a, a, an audio uh, discussion program um, of some 10 episodes now on our website, modern monetary theory, um, well, it's, it's RIP, rest in peace, modern monetary theory, perhaps. Um, it became a hot topic when government debt kept ballooning around the world, but long-term interest rates kept sagging lower and lower, and inflation remains comatose. That led uh, MMTers to argue that governments could act far more aggressively to sort out a variety of social ills by printing money. Uh, but um, perhaps not. If we go to the next slide, um, there's a quote here that basically the government debt has been rising steadily for many years, but now we've got uh, interest rates spiking and we're into serious problems. The illusion of limitless fiscal space Got a reality check in 2022. Japan, Japan had been favouring MMT talking points, given that it had been able to sustain high debt levels and low rates of interest. However, this year's inflation shock and global rise in interest rates exposed the risks um, and essentially caused a run on the yen. This illustrates that central banks can sustain a fiscal risk premium in the bond market, but if it does that, the risk premium just shows up in currency devaluation. And just to finish this on currency, well, here's an interesting thing. Central banks are buying gold. Um, central banks last year, uh, this third quarter, bought 90 tonnes of gold. This year, 400 tonnes of gold. They've already bought more gold this year than in any year since 1967. So that's well over 50 years, uh, a record of well over 50 years. The central banks, not our central bank, you understand, that would be too sensible, but other central banks are buying gold. And finally, to close this section, we have 
from um, a website. Uh, this is money.co.uk, Simon Lambert reporting on uh, long-term house prices compared to average earnings. And you see here that for 70 years, houses got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper under, what was that monetary system? Oh yes, the gold standard. Uh, all the way to 1914, they dropped from 13 times average earnings to two times average earnings. They're now back up to well over eight. And um, that's the effect of not having sound money, it would seem. Okay, and let's uh, finish off, David, with a couple of, uh, well, go ahead. Well, here we see uh, a, a Simpsons meme here. Don't make me tap the sign, says the bus driver. And the sign says, nothing that requires the labour of another person is a human right. That one I like very much. Um, and finally, to finish this this this, this uh, session, um, a little girl's asking her mum, mum, what's a conspiracy theorist? And the mum says, it's someone making fairly obvious observations that the government doesn't like. Yeah. Yeah, and that says it all. Uh, David and Mark, thank you very much for that. Thank you for joining us. Uh, as always, big thank you to our audience. And uh, please take our information and share it. Uh, we're putting it out there to reach as many people as possible. So if you can help us do that, that would be great. Number of people really talking about the life of Brian in the chat box because they've got to the point others describe it as clown world. Uh, that we're degenerating into utter madness. But just remember that the madness and chaos is planned because while we're swimming in that, we're not paying attention to who's really uh, pulling the strings. And uh, to me, if the banks are, are uh, buying gold by the tons, uh, we are looking at the people who really control the power. But more on that in due course. I extra think, in a couple of minutes. Extra in a couple of minutes. Thank you all very much for joining us. Bye-bye.